and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and my guest today has been called effortlessly funny by the CBC. Matt Falk is a stand-up comic from small-town Manitoba. He's had two albums reach number one on the iTunes comedy charts. He's been on stages across Canada and the United States ever since he was a teenager. He finished second at the World Series of Comedy in 2010. He's worked with Rob Schneider and Gilbert Gottfried, and he's maybe best known for what he doesn't do, the rare comedian who doesn't swear in his act. Here's his story. One of the things that I would get pretty often as a journalist, you you meet somebody at at a party or some social event, and they'll say something like, hey, I've got a story idea for you. I know that you're getting something similar to that in comedy. How often are you getting people telling you you should put this or you should put that in your set? They have a great idea for you. You get that as a stand-up comic constantly. So <laughs> it's I'm not gonna I don't wanna I don't wanna like use hyperbole. It's not after every show, right. but it's probably after every other show. And then uh, your interactions just in the street with people, it's it's a high percentage. A high percentage of interactions either start with or end with, hey, that should go in your act. And how often are you taking their advice on that? Like 1% of the time. Yeah. Less, <laughs> less than 1%. There's a reason that the average human being is not a stand-up comic. People right. are not funny. People right. are not funny. And even if it's something like that's like somewhat humorous, I don't think people understand how long it takes to craft a joke and like how difficult like a stand-up joke really, really is. So if someone, for instance, people come to me, they're like, well, like what's the, someone actually said this to me years ago. They said, what about incisors? You know, or mm-hmm. what about wisdom teeth? That's what he said. Cause we have words like incisors, bicuspids, and then suddenly wisdom teeth. What's uh-huh. up with that? Uh-huh. You should put that in your act. And I'm like, it would take me years to develop that into a joke that I'd be happy with. You really want me to be spending <laughs> years of my life working on this wisdom teeth bit that you've suddenly come up with? Right. And people don't even use like proper language. They'll say, th- that could be a good skit. Right. I'm like, this is not Sunday school. I'm not doing skits. Don't, <laughs> if you can't get the vernacular right, don't even, oh boy. Yeah, no, it's, it's constantly. But I'll tell you this, if, you, if we have time for this. Yeah. Uh, I had a, a gentleman who will remain nameless uh, who sent me an email. This was, again, a few years back now. Mm-hmm. And said, I, I do, I, I think of funny things every now and then. I, can I send you my stuff? And I, I'm always nice about it. I always say, yes, of course you can. Okay. And so he sent me his stuff and I read it and I was like, oh my word, this is really funny. So I took a little idea that he had in his email. I took mm-hmm. that, that bit and I went out, this is when I was living in Toronto or near Toronto. I went to Absolute Comedy Club in Toronto and I tried the joke out that night and it kind of worked. So I developed it and developed it, and it ended up making it into my my last uh, album that I released. In fact, he has a, two jokes that are his that are on that album, and one of them is the biggest laugh wow. on the album. So I'm not giving you his name because I don't want to give him credit. He does. I'm right. not. I'm. <laughs> I do, if he starts getting a big head, uh-huh. you know, then he's going to start coming around asking for royalty checks, and I can't afford it. So, right. no, it's it's amazing. So most of the time, it's it's nothing. But I will read your emails. I will read the jokes. And then that like 1% of the time, I was just amazed at how funny this guy was. So How close of a relation does somebody have to be in order for you to say, okay, I'll, I'll, 
I'll humor you and try something out. Or, or, or has, has, your, has your parents, have your family and friends, have they learned by now not to impose on you and, and want, uh, want you to take their ideas? You know, it's amazing. You'd think that people who know me best would, would be like, okay, let's not pester Matt with our joke ideas. Mm-hmm. But some people that are close to me have figured that out. Uh, and if someone, if they're nearby, when someone else says, "Hey, you should try this," they'll go, "Don't, don't do that," whatever. But other people who are very close to me still offer offer ideas and and jokes. And honestly, sometimes it's warranted. If we're in a conversation about comedy and it comes up, that's fine. Right. But don't don't come up to me and tell me that your wife is a bad cook and that I should put that in my act because it's right. not happening. It's just yeah. it's not. It's <laughs> hey, did you know so and so who lives in Winkler, Manitoba? His wife is a bad cook. <laughs> Is this entertaining for you folks at all to hear yeah. about? It's got to be the right room. <laughs> That's right. It's got to be apparently that guy's living room in Their order room, for that bit yeah. to work. Uh, you grew up in a, in a small town, some 4,000-ish people. Was it smaller even then? Neverville, Manitoba? Uh, what was, was pro- that like? It was probably smaller then. I think it's. I think we're closer to 5,000 now. We're like the fastest-growing rural community in Manitoba or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, the mayor pays me 30 bucks to say that every time I'm on uh-huh. a podcast. Uh-huh. It's, it's a wonderful little added money. Um, growing up in, in Niverville was awesome. I, I think a lot of people who grew up in small towns have the chip on their shoulder about small towns. Mm-hmm. Understandably, so it can be difficult. It's you, There's no anonymity in a small town. It's not just your close group of friends who know you. Everyone knows of you, especially right. when you uh, start doing comedy. But for me, that really, really helped. Having, having a, a huge group of people know about me right in the beginning with stand-up actually was was very helpful because you had everyone in your business, but when you're trying to self-promote, you kind of want everyone in your business. Right. But outside of uh, my career, it was really fun. It's just a, It was just a small town kind of growing up thing. My wife and I left um, in 2011. We mm-hmm. moved out to BC for a while, then moved out to Ontario for a couple of years, but we chose to, to come back to Neverville. So we're living in Neverville now again. So obviously it wasn't too traumatic of an experience for us because we, we wanted to come back home. So one one elementary school, one high school. Are there more than that? Is it is it more thriving than I'm than I'm painting the picture? There's one store, and in that store we get our education as well. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's a gas station slash school. It's very small, and there's also a vet who works there. Uh-huh. So the ox come in every once in a while. No, it's there's there was one elementary school and one high school. There still is, but. Um, the high school's busting at the seams right now because we're people like this whole small town living thing, mm-hmm. and we're so close to a major city. We're so close to Winnipeg, so the high school is literally like we have like huts outside where t- students will like walk outside of the building and into these little huts to learn because it's it's busting at the seams. But so now we're actually going to be getting a middle school uh, okay. soon. So three schools coming up, my friend. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we're on the map here, yeah. Martin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What what were you like then as a kid growing up, uh, going to the same school, the same one school as everybody else in town at your age? Uh, this is getting too personal now. <laughs> I, this is well, uh, uh, what was I like? I was um, I was that kid in school who was constantly trying to get attention. I was the class clown, but the annoying class clown. There were other class clowns that came up in high school that were like actually a lot funnier than I was in a, mm. and a little, probably a little bit more popular. I was like so desperate for attention that, uh, that I was, yeah, I was that kid. I, my report cards always said the same thing. It was like, uh, uh, you know, Matt disrupts others in class. Matt has trouble paying attention in class. Matt is rarely in class, things like that. 
it was it was I was I was always the kid going for the going for the joke, going for something like that. Yeah, what was your go-to to get a laugh in, in those years? In those years, you you have to play the situation because mm. you, you can't like you can't have like one bit that you're always doing. You can't like I fall off the chair and that seems right. to work constantly. You have to <laughs> you have to like wait for the opportunity to strike. So uh, this is so lame. I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast. But my in grade ten biology. <laughs> uh, we have to take turns reading from the textbook, right? Uh-huh. So I thought it'd be hilarious that as I was reading about the structure of an atom, every time I came across the word mitochondria, I would say it in a really exaggerated voice. Okay. So I would be reading out loud to the class. Okay, it's my turn. I say, uh, the atom is, consists of many parts, and the mitochondria <laughs> is the powerhouse of the cell. And the cell cannot function properly without the mitochondria. Yeah. So I technically wasn't doing anything wrong. And that I found hilarious. So then every time throughout, <laughs> that, throughout that whole stretch, whatever it was, the two weeks that we were learning about the cell, every time I came across the word mitochondria, I said it like the SNL announcer. And right. that, seemed, that seemed to work pretty well. I rode that wave for a couple weeks. Right. It worked out okay. The teacher wasn't saying, okay, Matt, we're, we're not going to you anymore. We're just going to skip that over you. Te- and. That teacher, God bless her, she um, was so annoyed with me by the end. Uh, I don't. She doesn't work there anymore, and I just I wonder sometimes. I'm like, how much of that was my fault? Because I think back over like teachers that I had in the past, and I just feel so bad for them because the having to put up with me without committing some sort of crime is is mm. honestly a miracle. I would have snapped at my students if I had a student like me so quickly. The fact that she put up with me for as long as she did was like literally it was remarkable. It was remarkable. <laughs> uh was the goal then to do comedy? Did you have aspirations or was it just enough for you to be uh you know the source of the laughter in the classroom? No, I wanted to do comedy. Comedy was really cool to me back then. I I grew up watching uh, just for laughs, uh, comedy now was on TV. Then so was uh, um, all those other shows. Uh, comedy at Club Fifty Four was on when I was growing mm-hmm. up, and I would watch these stand-ups mainly on Just for Laughs, and just I would memorize their stuff. I memorized Ellen DeGeneres and Robin Williams, and would recite their acts in front of the mirror. I started doing comedy at talent shows at school and around the the fair when I was in high school. I I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. But that being said, eventually I was like, I was going to become a pastor. That was my goal. Mm -hmm. I was going to go to Providence University College and get a seminary degree and all that stuff. And then (laughs) I remember, and I don't know where you or your listeners stand on any of this, but I I remember I was standing and I, uh, I had this clear sense that God did not want me to be a pastor and he wanted me to get into comedy. Mm. And if you think about it, that's very insulting, <laughs> right? You're like, Lord, I want to serve you. And he's like, we're good. Yeah, maybe yeah. Not. Why don't you tell your little jokes, huh? Why don't you do that? <laughs> so I got into comedy. Uh, uh, I started pursuing it more uh, passionately or whatever directly after that. Yeah. What was making it to you as as a kid then? What was the peak of what you thought would be uh, what it was to be a comedian? Wow, I think as a I don't know if I ever really thought about it that much. I think because I was just kind of riding the wave. I would do. I was so focused on the talent show that was coming up, and I was going to do stand up in that talent show. So I had to like write the bits for that or steal the material for that 
but my early couple of years, I stole mm-hmm. a lot of material from other and people like, you're really good. And I'm like, well, no, they're really good. Right. So I, was that, <laughs> what was that? Ellen at the time or was that somebody that was, else? That was Ellen. A lot of Ellen, a lot of Robin Williams yeah. that had to be cleaned up for talent shows. <laughs> and then a lot of just a big variety of uh, comics from just for laughs. I remember I did a, a thing one time and I did like a whole I did Wendy Liebman's in like one of her entire sets. Um, she's in a, a brilliant stand-up comic and she has this great style where she'll say like, I was, I was on an airplane. I could tell the person beside me really wanted me to shut up. I could tell cause they kept going, shut up, just shut up. I guess they were <laughs> kind of busy, you know, flying the plane. So she had this great style and I loved it. So I, I would do those jokes and then I would launch into Robin Williams and Ellen DeGeneres. So my style was yeah. all over the place. But right. I, I think my, if I really had to think about it back then, my goal making it as a comic would be just for laughs. I think something like that. Cause that was what I was watching the best of the best on. So, you know, getting there. You're, you're practicing in front of the mirror. Are you holding up like a, a comb or a hairbrush as your microphone? What's, what's your microphone? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't remember. I think a lot of times I would have just faked it. I would have right. just like ripped nothing kind right. of a thing. Um, yeah. I don't remember though. That's a good question. Uh, so regardless, just imagine me looking like a dork. Yeah. What's your what's your family like? Uh, what what were your parents doing? Uh, did you have siblings in the house, or, or what? Where were you getting kind of influences um, around you? I did I, I I did have a I still have a sibling. Right, yeah. she's, she's still around. Um, yeah, I have one older sister, and uh, both my parents were very supportive of comedy. They were right from the beginning. They were totally okay with me doing it. I started off actually doing magic when I was like 15, 16. Mm-hmm. And my dad was well connected in the business world. So he was like helping me get corporate gigs. So I would end up performing magic at these like company parties for the kids and stuff like that. And then mm-hmm. uh, eventually it fully transitioned into comedy only when I realized that performing for kids is awful. And then. <laughs> My dad would drive me to my gigs. He would give me ideas for jokes along the way. Uh-huh. He would talk about my set with me afterwards. They were my my parents were very very supportive of comedy. What was your first paid gig that you remember? Oh wow. Um, well, I won a talent show early on. Does that count? That so, the, not. so there was like a money prize at the end of it. There was a if money you won. prize at the end, but then I first like paid gig. That's a huge question. I think it probably would have been, I worked at a corn maze in, in Manitoba called Amazing Corn, and they had these events, and I would sometimes perform at them. So it was probably one of those. It was probably outside in a tent, and I was standing on like some handmade stage made out of hay bales and, uh-huh. and, and plywood. And yeah, it was probably that. And it was probably like 250 bucks or something like that, something sweet at the time. Yeah, and not bad. How how old were you? Would you have been at the time? Do you think that would have been like fifteen, sixteen, something like that? Yeah, it's pretty good for a fifteen year old for a day's absolutely. work. Absolutely, and it wasn't even like it was just a, like a couple hours. Though magic is tricky because you got to buy all your props and you got to like set up. Mm. So you got to like bring. I had to bring a karaoke machine, which was my microphone uh, uh-huh. at the time, and then I also that's where I played my CDs, and I would like have to like change CDs and press play to get like different sound cues and music cues and stuff like that. I had the night at the Roxbury soundtrack that when I went out in the audience and like got people, I was like, what is love? And like that would pump through my one speaker karaoke machine. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, you had to make sure all the props were packed up in this big silver briefcase, and it was a, it was hugely tiresome. So much so that I remember when I first did my first show, where it was just stand up comedy, no magic. I remember leaving the house, going, "Okay, do I have everything? Do I have it?" And then I stopped, and I was like, "I don't need anything. I just need me." And it was so freeing and so liberating. And I, I still have that feeling sometimes when I leave for shows where I'm like, this is awesome. All I need is myself and I can go entertain these people. Okay, so you're, you're 15, 16 years old. You're starting to do these gigs. Uh, when, when is the first time that you end up hitting the road to go somewhere else? What, what's your first, you know, moving out of Niverville or not moving out, but somebody is going to, you've got a show lined up outside of town somewhere. Well, that probably would have been like one of my first shows because like the the corn maze was outside of town, mm-hmm. uh, but it was still technically kind of in my zone. So it would have been pretty early on, though, that I would have gone out to like Winnipeg or Blumenort, I think, was one of them. My dad yeah. had set up this like show uh, for a tire company and they had this whole big full day where people were supposed to come in and have different stuff going on. And I did a whole show out there in Blumenort. I think it's blooming on for uh, for the kids and the adults. And that was like that. I remember being like a good show. That was really, really early on. But I remember that being a good show. I I went out and I I was getting I was getting paid. That one might have even been more. Might have been like 500, 600 bucks. And I remember setting up and doing the show and it being a big hit. I remember people like laughing and clapping. And it, it I feel leaving feeling like, yeah, that was really good. Mm-hmm. That was quite good. But like I remember I, I trans- transitioned into doing more comedy kind of on purpose, but kind of not. Cause I remember one time, cause I was just getting paid to do magic at this point. And one time I did a show at the corn maze again, they had another group that wanted entertainment, but it was all adults. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, I just do kids shows. What am I going to do? So I kind of just did the same show I always do, but played it to the adults and it still kind of worked. It was kind of weird and campy cause I'd be doing like magic tricks and stuff. But, and I would try to like adult it up a little bit more, make it a little bit more clever, make it a little less kitty. And it just kind of started forcing my brain to transition into that kind of stuff. I know that's not the question you asked, and I'm going all over the place, but that's <laughs> the risk you take when you talk to me. Did you have jitters in those days before getting on stage? Like, what oh, was, yeah. What were you like? Yeah, oh, totally. Um, you get nervous all the time, because especially back then, you would see the audience. They're right there. Right. And you Especially in a corn maze, it's not like the, the lights are dimmed or anything. It's probably the no, you're, daylight. No, you're outside. Yeah. You're just outside. And yeah. you have to like, you walk up and, okay, there's the group. They're in the tent. And I know I have to go over here and I have to set up beforehand. And you kind of look at the audience. And as you're setting up, they're kind of looking at you like, who's this kid? And I'm wearing a mm. bright red uh, women's blazer from the thrift store. It was like mm. the brightest thing I could find. So in my mind, that was like a good magician yeah. suit, jacket. And yeah, you just, you look at these people and you go, oh, they're going to hate me, or that person looks angry, or these kids look out of control, or you psych yourself out like crazy. And that was always my problem, is I would hear about an okay, this is all adults, or this audience is blah, 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 and I would psych myself up, oh, they're going to hate me. Oh, this this right. won't, won't go over well. So that was that was the jitters. It was usually self-induced like that. You're trying to set yourself up so that if things go wrong, you've already kind of, you're, you're, you're almost spreading the, the disappointment thin over a long longer period of time so it's not as painful if it does go wrong are you trying to prepare yourself or what's the what's the mind doing i don't know i don't know what the mind is doing that's a that's a good psychological question i think i think it's just i don't know i don't know why we have fears i know that fear is a liar and i know that most of the time you know when it's not like 
it's probably self it probably is got something to do with self preservation but it's probably also those like deep rooted insecurities mm. that you have you know from childhood and from high school and you're you know you could be at school and you could be like feeling insecure and not included and then now you're going to go on stage to a bunch of strangers and well they'll probably hate me too and it's right. just kind of yeah so I, i'm not sure exactly what it is but it's it might be a mixture of all that stuff right yeah there's a there's a Seinfeld episode. Jerry is upset with his dentist because he thinks that his dentist has converted to Judaism for the jokes. Yes, and then someone someone <laughs> yeah. asks him, "And this offends you as a Jewish person?" Right. He says, "No, this offends me as a comedian." <laughs> exactly. How how often are you pulling from growing up as a Mennonite in your sets? That's a good question. Um, in the beginning, a lot. I remember the first time I was like really writing jokes that were my own. Uh, a lot of it had to do with growing up in a small town. And every time I would mention Mennonite at all on stage, it would get a huge laugh. And I didn't even really understand why at that age. You just kind right. of know it's working. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the first jokes I ever wrote was a parody of the Lumberjack song from Monty Python. It was the Mennonite song. So I would sing that everywhere I went. It was my closer for like forever, mm -hmm. forever. Um, so I pulled I pulled from that stream quite a bit. And then it was later on in life that I started toning it down because I would hear things like, you know, they're not going to get these jokes outside of Manitoba. Hmm. And then, oddly enough, uh, when I started working with bigger name comics and when I started getting reviewed and things like that, people would start saying things like, I would like to hear more about his Mennonite background or he's an expert in this. He should talk about it more uh -huh. and things like that. And I was like, what? You guys want to hear about this again? All right. So I've been starting to introduce it more and more, but in a way that's more palatable, pal palatable, palpable, pal palpable, <laughs> Senator Palpatine. Um, right. It's a way that's more Palpatine to other people. So I try to like make it, make the setups more generic so that everybody can kind of get in on the joke. Right. Yeah. What is, because uh, there's a difference too, slightly. I, I know, I know what Waterloo Region Mennonite is like. That's my experience. That's my background. I know what that's like. I'm not sure what, what Manitoba Mennonite is like. The difference between, say, like the Swiss Swiss German Mennonites to the Russian Mennonites and the, the idiosyncrasies that go along with those different kind of Well, that's very that simple, Martin. I, I can explain that in half a second. See, the Russian Mennonites are real Mennonites, and you guys are <laughs> fake wannabe Mennonites. Right. So you somehow stole our culture. I don't know how you did it, <laughs> but you, you snuck in there. You call yourself Mennonites. I don't even know if you eat pierogies. I don't know. I don't know anything about you people. <laughs> you got your weird wooden shoes and you got Shimon Fott. It doesn't make any sense. Pick a lane. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have no idea what the differences is. Right. I, I know that I grew up in the Russian Mennonite community. I bet you there's way more similarities than there are differences. That's that's for darn sure. Right. Probably true. But are you, are you growing up, as you're growing up, uh, are people seeing you and, and meeting you and hearing your Mennonite and, and auto, automatically assuming that means you have a horse and buggy. I don't know if, are there horse and buggy Mennonites in Niverville or is it a different kind that you have? Uh, are, are people presuming things right away about you? Oh yeah. People, people make these assumptions like crazy, but it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because like most people don't know what it is. Most people, when you say Mennonite, they think Amish, right. right? They think, oh, you, so you, you can't have electricity. How do you do comedy? That's a big question I get. How do you do comedy as a Mennonite? <laughs> and I'm, I never understand that question. I'm like, I, I, I just do. I don't know. I didn't. I never felt it like it was a barrier, you know. Right. But the world seems to think that it's, it's, it would be a hurdle to jump over. 
But for me, I always just, it was an advantage early on, that's for sure, for material. And then it seems to be an advantage even now. But people love pigeonholing. People don't like thinking, hmm. Martin. That's the problem. People don't want to think too hard or too long about things. So they just, they'll hear something like Mennonite and they'll just try to put it in as small of a box as possible so that they don't have to actually use their brain very much. And we, we all do this with everything. So if when you, you say that you're a journalist, I'll find a box that fits you well, and I'll put you in there, and I'll just right. leave you in there until I'm forced to get to know you more, and then that box has to grow. Right. Was that limiting to you growing up to not have necessarily other comedians that you could look to who, who had done it? Who were you looking to and saying, you know, somebody's come before me and done it, I can do it too? Or did you have that belief in yourself? that you didn't I, have to have those models. Well, I had, there was a guy named Leland, there still is a guy named Leland Clausen who used to bill himself as Canada's only Mennonite comedian uh -huh. and then ironically enough stopped when I came on the scene. Leland was the, the guy who mentored me and, and, and really, really helped in my career. And so I had, I had that model, but I, like I said, I never really, I had this blind optimism. I never thought that there was something to overcome or that I was somehow you know, at a disadvantage. I was like 17 when I was getting into comedy clubs and really busting onto the comedy scene. And people were just amazed that I was so young and putting together full sentences that were funny. So <laughs> it, was, it was remarkably easy early on in my career. That is the complete polar opposite from most comics. Mm -hmm. But early in my career, it was the easiest time ever. I, I, there was no overcoming of really anything. It was just a rocket shooting really, really fast, really, really high. It was only in my early 20s that I really started facing this huge crisis because I was no longer young enough to be like a prodigy. Mm. I now I now had to be funny enough just as an adult. And that was when I really started to struggle. When, when was that? What happened then? And what was that time period like? It, it's funny. I've, I, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but that would, would have been my early 20s. And I distinctly remember... They're kind of being a, like I used to talk about puberty on stage because uh -huh. I was I was like 17, even 18 and 19. It was working. And I, I would talk about when I went through puberty and I looked really, really young. And I remember one night I got on stage at the Mall of America at the House of Comedy. I think it's Rick Bronson's House of Comedy in the Mall of America. Mm -hmm. And I did my normal set and it didn't work. And then I remember leaving and my family was there watching and, mm. and we had a conversation about it afterwards. And it was like, I'm too old for this material. Mm -hmm. I, I can't. So I, I realized I was riding on being young, like mine for like years. So I really had to like start thinking about what was funny again and like what I could write that was unique to being an adult now. And it was it was really challenging. And I remember going on stage and now it was no longer, oh, wow, this kid's so young. This is amazing. It was just, oh, he's young. He's probably not going to be funny. Mm. It wasn't so, so young that it was impressive. Was this before or after your World Series of Comedy in 2010? Was, was it, I'm guessing this is probably after then. It was it was right around that same time. Yeah. So it was I think it was a little bit before that I was really starting to have a crisis because the World Series of Comedy was really beneficial to me. That was that was really nice. That helped a great deal. Right. But crises can can happen over the period of many, many years. Even while you're having success, right. you can be battling these things in your own mind. So it was, sure, even after that, even after this whole kind of comet of, of awesome stuff started happening to me, there was still a huge struggle of going, okay, now I got I to really be funny, though. I got to really be funny. I'm competing against big names, like not just in the competition, but I mean like in 
you always feel like you're competing in comedy. You're like, I'm, I'm up against all these great guys who've been doing it forever and they're brilliant. So yeah, it was, it was, I think it was overlapping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the world series of comedy just for a minute. That was, uh, you're, you're 21 at the time when this happens. Uh, you, you come in second, this is in Las Vegas. What are you thinking at the time? 21 years old, you know, placing second, uh, and having this, this success come to you to be recognized by your peers in the, in the industry for being funny. You get, you get that validation. It was so weird. We, I remember we drove in, I drove in with, um, uh, a couple of people. I went in with, uh, my buddy Victor and who was actually filming the whole thing because uh-huh. he, he had this feeling like this was going to be really big and really exciting. And, uh, and then my manager, or not my manager, the manager of Rumors Comedy Club at the time. I wanted him to be my manager. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was, he was, we all went in together. And there was 101 people that got accepted, which even getting accepted, I remember we were camping at the time, my wife and I with uh, her sister and uh, her family. And I remember going on my phone and figuring out, oh my word, I made it. We were trying to get like an internet connection. And it was like, it was that, that blew our mind. So just being in the competition was like huge. Mm-hmm. And I go out there and it was a round robin kind of thing. And I remember doing my first set, which was like seven minutes and against like seven other comics. And I remember thinking like, I think I might win this round. Because uh-huh. you're watching the other guys and you, you heard your response and you heard theirs and you're like, is that true? Could that Could this be true? <laughs> and then... Sure enough, they call your name and you're like, okay. So I tell everyone at home over Facebook. I told my wife and she was keeping everyone posted. And it was just this amazing. And people were like, wow, that's amazing already. This is such a huge accomplishment. Yeah. And then the second round and I won again. And then I was like, I don't know what's happening anymore. I've just won again. And now I'm going to be in the semifinals and then the finals. So it was like, I think it was like that was the semi. Now I'm in the semifinals and then you just, you have to do a longer set. And it was just, it was just insane that, and then when they called, then they said that I got second, you just, I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, at that point, the second place is always a bit bitter, you know, at, right. when you're, cause it was, it was just me and two other guys Yeah. at the very, at the front for the finals. So that was the only one that didn't feel good. You know, that one you wanted to win, right. but every, every, <laughs> every other one you're excited. <laughs> but and then in retrospect, you're like, no, second is really good. Second is really good. So yeah, that was, I just couldn't believe it. I, I didn't, I don't know if I didn't think I deserved it or I didn't think that this was possible at the time, but it was, it was insane. Do you have a, a routine that you get into before you get on stage? Something that you do every time? Like a, oh, like a, like a kind of a psych up kind of a thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, some people, it might be superstitions or, or different things that they have to do or, or, or want to do before they get on stage each time. What, what's your general routine, whether it's uh things you got to get through before you get on the stage. So I try to get myself in a really, really good mood. So what I'll do is I will try to get giddy. So I'll kind of like look at the audience and kind of tell myself, oh, this is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fun. I'll kind of move my legs a lot. And then I'll kind of jump up and down a little bit, just get really psyched and try to get in a really silly kind of mind space. And then I'll pray. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. It's not like a beautiful, deep prayer. It's like I literally like I'm like I ask God, I'm like, please help me be funny and help them laugh. Help me be funny. Help them laugh. Help me be funny. (laughs) Help them laugh. Just over and over. And then, and then I, then I go. So yeah, I, that's a big thing for me though. I gotta, I gotta get in that right mind space. I Mm -hmm. say, if you don't, then you, it's, it can, it can be, it can go wrong. When is the, the worst that you've tanked on stage? Oh, 
I remember one time I did a show for a seed convention. It was like a group of farmers. Uh-huh. They put me in this room. It was a giant room. And there was probably like 30 people spread out over this giant room. And I went up there and I was so excited because I had tailored my whole set to them. I was going to tell the same jokes I always told, Mm -hmm. but I had kind of put a spin on them to make them farming related. So I'd done work and I went up there and they just hated it. They were like, from beginning to end, I have the set recorded and no one's ever going to hear it ever, Uh, (laughs) but I've, I've kept it. I don't know why, just as like a, a weird memento of how crappy things can get. Yeah. And for an hour, they just sat there in silence. And oh. that's a corporate gig. They've paid you. Right. You have to finish the hour. Yeah. So I remember that, that night or that night or afternoon or whatever it was, I was, okay, okay, I'm coming up to this joke. This joke always works. Don't worry about that. This joke will, this joke will get them going. And then I do the joke and it's kind of like a, eh. And I'm like, no, yeah. I don't have another one of those for another seven minutes. <laughs> so I know it's going to be awful until I get to this next huge one and then still nothing. And it was just an hour of that. And it's just so awkward because they're looking at me going, why are you still here? And I'm looking at them going, I don't know. And it's, <laughs> it's just awful. So I've had, I've had a few of those. Do you listen back to that occasionally? If you're in a in a torturous mood or what I listened uh, yeah. I listened back to it once. Yeah. And I remember thinking that it was slightly better than I remember. Uh-huh. But still, uh that was that was the only time because yeah. It usually is better than you remember. Because when you're on stage, all you can think is they hate me, they hate me, they hate me, they hate me, they hate me. And like you're just you feel so awkward. Right. Like I think that's a big thing that a lot of people don't understand is how uncomfortable it feels as a comedian. Cause it's not like a movie where they're watching me and they hate me on screen. Like I'm right there. Right. Like I'm 10 feet away from this guy who's staring at me with like disgust in his eyes. And I, (laughs) I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. We're not separated by anything. We both understand how we feel about each other. It's really uncomfortable. And what's hard is that all my insecurities come up because I know that they're thinking that I'm not funny, but I, I desperately want to show them that I am funny. Yeah. So I've had shows where I've like, you try to slip in credits that you've done. You get so desperately insecure that you're like, I've done this really successful show and they yeah. really liked it there. You try to slip it in somehow, but it just makes it worse. And like, it's because the only reason you really get into comedy in the first place is because there's some sort of insecurity. No mm-hmm. healthy person is seeking the affirmation of strangers night <laughs> after night. So when you go on stage and it doesn't work, all the all that insecurity, the stuff that makes you a comedian, your superpower, yeah. it comes back and it, it turns out to be your downfall. Uh, do you get hecklers? And if so, how do you deal with them? It varies over my career. So yes, you get hecklers all the time. In the beginning, I didn't know how to deal with them. I distinctly remember my very first heckle. Someone yelled, I was like very young. Mm-hmm. Remember I was in the club, I might've been 18 or 17. And I, I did a, I opened my mouth, I did like my first joke. Hi, my name is Matt Falk. I didn't even do a joke, I don't think. I was like, my name is Matt Falk. And someone yelled out, card him, as in check uh-huh. his ID. Yeah. Card him! And everyone laughed, and I didn't hear what he said. Uh-huh. So I, my response, this is my brilliant response, was, what? <laughs> he said, I, I, I said, cardum, which just gave the opportunity for more people to hear him and laugh. Yeah. And then I said, Car- what does that mean, cardum? Because I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, what does cardum mean? Uh-huh. And then he had to explain it to me. He's like, it means like check your ID. <laughs> oh, and I was like, oh, okay. So I'm a Mennonite. 
And then I went into my act and it was just so uncomfortable. And to this yeah. day, I still don't have a, like a comeback for that guy. I think about him all the time. Yeah. And I don't even know what I would say now. Like if he was like, I would just be so pent up with anger now. He'd be like, Carter. I'm like, card you, your face, you suck, <laughs> you should die. That's all, like I would have nothing good to say back to him even yeah. today. But that was, and then later on, I started becoming really aggressive with hecklers. Hmm. And it kind of, uh, so I would deal with it the way any other comic would. I would put them in their place as quickly and powerfully as possible because you're in survival mode when you're up there. You're like, hmm. I can't die, they have to die. Yeah. So I would put them down and put them down hard and then this revelation hit my wife and I, because we write together. We thought, what if we were really nice to the heckler? Mm. What if we were like, what if the heckler left feeling better than when he first got in the room? Mm -hmm. And yet we still maintained control of the room. So we've been working on that. And oddly enough, it works. <laughs> if So we've been trying to do that. We've been trying to like include the, the heckler in the show up until... How we how much we feel comfortable still maintaining right. control, yeah, and make try to make them feel really good about themselves, and try to get them to be quiet while being happy. And it's not like it's we're not trying to make like come up with a new way of being funny. We know it's funnier if you're mean, right. but we feel like we there's a responsibility for comics to make everyone happy in that room. And a heckler ninety percent of the time isn't trying to be mean; they're trying to get a laugh. They're they're me in high school. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They're there and someone says something and they see an opening and they're insecure and they're desperate for attention. So they say something right. and then some comic on stage shuts them down so hard that a room of strangers laughs at them like that. That can be hugely devastating. So yeah. we, we want to make even them leave the show feeling good about themselves, but we don't want to sacrifice the show for them. So we're, that's what we're trying to come up with a way to, to balance that. And it's, it's working OK. There is some poetic justice, I think, to you dealing with a room full of, of people like you in high school. Uh, being on oh, stage. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm sure your teachers yeah. would love I've that. I've had I've had teachers in shows. Yeah, and I'm always worried that they're going to heckle me because <laughs> I they yeah. deserve it, right? If they right. do, I would just I would just probably have to sit there and take it. Like I don't know what the justice in that would be. I would have to just sit there and be like, yes, you are correct. I'm an idiot. Like because right. otherwise, it'd feel I'd feel too guilty probably. But yeah, it, it there is kind of a poetic justice. It's because it, everyone is just a human being. Heck, we try to villainize hecklers, but. They're just, they're us. They just made a really stupid decision in that moment to, to yell at a professional. Yeah. And it's like, you realize, buddy, that I could destroy you right now, but I'm going to try to go easy on you. So getting back a little bit to, to uh, the time you're at World Series of Comedy, you know, that you have this incredible high, but, but there's something about the, I don't know, just the pathology of the way that we are, where it's almost that after those biggest moments is when you can really start to doubt yourself again, because now you've, you've got this, you know, placing second and you you think, okay, how am I going to follow this up? And how am I going to mm -hmm. follow that up? And how am I going to follow that up? How do you uh, get out of that headspace or, or what's gotten you through the hard times when you're facing doubts? Because it's not easy uh, to make it in comedy. Hmm. Wow. Um, what some people don't realize, and I think it's because we like a story to be proper. So I think people think that a comic has doubts and then they overcome those doubts mm -hmm. and then they are who they are today. Right. But that's not what happens. In my experience, I go through these crises every year for sure. Yeah. And when I say crises, I mean like incredible self-doubt. Like, and if I'm being completely, completely vulnerable, I'm in the middle of one right now. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm in I'm in the tail end of it. I see myself coming out of it. But the only way to get yourself out of these things is to know your true identity. So mm-hmm. I I know who I am and who I am is not Matt Falk the comedian. Right. And we don't need to to get into it in your podcast if you don't want to, but you need to know who you are. You need to know and it needs to be based off of something bigger than you. It needs to be based off something higher than you. And because if it's on something higher than you, when you're shaken, then that, the core of you isn't shaken. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So that is a big thing that keeps me grounded. And the other thing, my wife is is amazing. Like I said, we write together. We, we've been on this adventure together for the whole time we've been together. And which is pretty pretty much the start of everything. We were high school sweethearts. We started uh, uh, dating just before my 17th birthday. So when I started getting into comedy, mm-hmm. she was there with me from the beginning. And she's really good at, at kind of talking me down from these moments. So a big one is competitiveness with other comics. Whenever, whenever you see another comic do like a late night spot or something, we have this mentality that, oh, now there's less for me somehow. Mm. Like yeah. that's not true. There's enough to go around. And she always reminds me of that. The other thing is just because someone so comics will often listen to a bit that's brilliant and will listen to it with anger because we're like, why didn't I think that? <laughs> right. that's so good? Or like a, a comedian style. Sometimes comics, sometimes I'll watch a comedian and go, that is such a brilliant style. I wish that was my style. Right. I wish that I could start over and just do that. But the truth is, and Sabrina said this to me the other day, people don't want everyone to be the same comic. Like when I grew up, I watched Ellen DeGeneres and Robin Williams. They were my favorites. Right. Those are the two most polar opposite styles out there. One is like slow and almost stammering and kind of poetic the way she talks and brings everything back over here. And Robin is manic and oh yes, oh look over here, oh yeah, oh, and he's just boom, boom, <laughs> boom. And I wanted both so desperately. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be both of those people. So I think remembering who you are just outside of comedy, but then also remembering who you are inside of comedy and going, eventually there's going to be a place for me. There's people who like what I'm doing and I just have to like not compare myself, not, you know, because otherwise I'm just robbing myself of something that was never mine to begin with. Can you sense that when it's coming on those, those periods of doubt? Do you know that you're going to get, be in for a long haul or does it hit you all of a sudden? It, it, you can kind of tell, I think, because it's usually our feelings are excellent followers, but they're, they're horrible leaders. So often we put them in charge of things and they shouldn't be in charge of Mm. things. But like, so I'll like, let's say I'll be going through my emails and I'll realize I really haven't got a email from, you know, this person in a while. Right. I wonder, I wonder why. And then you, you can kind of in the back of your head go, "Uh Oh, if things like this keep happening, I'm, I might start spiraling. Uh-huh. So then, and then sure enough, you know, a couple little things happen. Um, this person says no, uh, this, you know, group turns you down and you just have this few couple things. And then all of a sudden someone really close to you gets a huge big break and something awesome happens to them. And you're like, I'm so happy for them. That's so exciting. And then you can start going, Oh, what's happening. And then, but the spirals don't always last the same amount of time. Sometimes they'll last for like a month and other mm-hmm. times they'll, There'll be a few days. And then the the trick is I, I always hate getting out of a spiral just because something good happens to me. Right. Because then then other people are in control of how I feel. Right. Right. I'm only as happy as my last good show or my last email. That sucks. Yeah. So it's better if you can pull yourself out of it before something positive happens. If you can learn to be content 
in want, then then I think that's a good place to be. Yeah. Oh, life, eh? It's just uh, it's it's constant figuring out process and. Isn't it though? Yeah. Uh, I know what you mean. What's the what's the comedy community like in Canada? I mean, you ha- you have peers. Uh, they, you know, I'm sure they're going through a lot of the same things. Is it a supportive one? Are you getting that sense of community from other people out there? Uh, because I, it's it's a small thing too. I imagine. I, I know the same way in broadcasting, where it's a very small community and and people kind of know each other, uh, because mm. we're not that big of a country still, and and uh, you know, there's only so many people doing it. What's it like yeah. uh, for you as a comedian? Uh, the community in Canada is amazing. So for instance, like, um, you get to know kind of whoever's in your class. That's kind of a terminology that we use or throw around. That's like people that are starting roughly the same time that you started and you kind of start, you move up at the same speed generally that they are moving up. So you really get to know the people in your class. So, but it only really starts when you start really plugging into the community. When you're just doing, when I was just doing corporates and stuff like that in, in Manitoba, I didn't have much of a community. When I plugged into the scene in Winnipeg, there's awesome guys in Winnipeg. And then even more so when I started plugging into the scene in Canada. So when I did uh, Just for Laughs, when I did the Homegrown in Just for Laughs, you meet all these amazing people. And then you go to different festivals. I did Halifax Comedy Festival, Winnipeg Comedy Festival. And you, you're like, hey, you're back. And it's always like a reunion. And it's always right. like, it is a really small group and they're, they're really tight knit and they're really supportive so much. And we're also kind of all underdogs cause we're Canadians. Yeah. So for instance, the Junos wasn't recognizing standup comedy as, uh, as one of their awards for decades. And a couple comics got together and said that should stop. And a few guys really petitioned and a few gals really petitioned and, and got some things moving and got some stuff off the ground. And, and now Ivan Decker just one uh, best comedy album, mm-hmm. you know, for the first time in who knows how long. So, and that's incredibly exciting. So like, and, and that's good. I think when we realize that it's not a competition, when we are working at this together, we get more stuff done. Right. If we would have been competitive about this, then, you know, Ivan wouldn't have this award, but it's n- not about Ivan winning. It's about the fact that now comedy in Canada is growing. And we, I think we all have a innate sense of knowing that that's really, really important. Right. You know, something that you said earlier had me thinking, uh, you know, I think in my own life, too, I've had periods of time where I think especially before I, I was a lot more career minded and uh, and I put a lot of my own identity into my career, wanting to be at the best I could possibly be as a, as a broadcaster. And, and that was going to determine, you know, how I felt about myself and, and my own sense of success. Uh, yeah. Coming to realize that you know, if I put all of my eggs in that basket, or if I put all of my identity into what it just means to have this external success, I'm probably not setting myself up for a very happy, <laughs> happy existence. Uh, Absolutely. What what grounds you uh, beyond uh, beyond the career, the things that, you know, that let you know who you are beyond just Matt Falk entertainer, uh, but the things that that'll ultimately satisfy you? It's my faith in God that mm-hmm. satisfies me. So without Without my faith, I, I don't know how I would be doing any of this. So my my Oma just passed away. We, do, we were just at her funeral. And as we were walking away from the grave um, back to my car, my dad was beside me. And I just said, I don't know how people do this without God. Mm. And I find myself saying that constantly about everything. It's it's the one thing that that keeps me truly full of joy. It's the one thing that keeps me truly focused on what's important and what matters. And it's the one thing ironically enough, that ends up filling up all those other tanks. So my family is also incredibly important to me. 
But without God, I don't know how to see my family. He's the lens of which I view my family and the lens of which I can serve and love my family. Because if I'm going on, but you asked me, so it's your fault. Um, <laughs> but, so for instance, there's a, there's a, a verse in scripture that says that uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, which basically means that when I feel get into a fight with my wife or something, that verse keeps popping up. It's no longer me who live. I don't need to worry about my own feelings or whether or not I'm right in this situation or not. It's no longer I who live. I, I should be dying. I should be sacrificing for other people. And, and oftentimes when you do that, when you start humbling yourself, you realize, hey, I was actually wrong in that situation. It's, maybe that's just in my marriage, but I, I'm generally <laughs> the one who's wrong because I'm, I'm, I'm very difficult to live with. I don't know if you've gotten that by the interview so far, Martin, but <laughs> So like it, it helps me do better in my marriage and like sacrificing even in comedy, making making the right ethical calls. Uh, you don't need to make ethical calls if you're if you're not grounded in God. I, I do that because I'm serving something bigger than I am. And I don't know. It's just it's the it's yeah, it's the lens of which I view everything else through and which makes everything else stronger. So I have a I have a more fulfilling comedy life. I was just talking to a, a comic, Taylor Williamson, who's on America's Got Talent about this just a few weeks ago, saying like I'm getting to the point where if I don't need anything external to make me happy any longer, I don't need to make it really big. If I, if I stopped, if people stopped calling and things started drying up, yeah, I would have a hard time with it, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't destroy me. I'm at the place mm -hmm. in my life where it wouldn't wreck me. I'm, I'm content and I'm happy just knowing who I am in Christ. Yeah, that's a good place to be. Matt, thanks so much. It was my pleasure, Martin. It was my pleasure. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review. It's on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you want to get in touch, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast, or find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>